0: Welcome to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. The Ideas Factory is an exclusive series by ORF that delves into the big geopolitical events that affect India and
1: the world. Hello, and welcome to the Ideas Factory. As we discuss the various issues on this episode, the G7 summit is taking place where the group of seven countries are meeting and India is also attending. Prime Minister Modi is in Germany as, uh, 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 because he's been invited along with a few other countries like Argentina, Indonesia, Senegal, South Africa. They've been invited as partner countries. We will look at the significance of this invitation. Prime Minister Modi is there on the invitation of the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. So the G7 meeting is taking place and the focus is to step up Uh, further sanctions so that uh, uh, the war against Ukraine can be brought to a quick end. But the question is, will that take place? Uh, Four of the countries, four of the member countries have already announced that they're going to ban the export of gold from Russia. These countries are UK, US, Japan and uh, Canada. How effective, effective will that ban be? Uh, Will that uh, really force Russia to end this war? Because Russia is also facing a very difficult economic situation now. And it is probably the first time in a century that Russia has defaulted um, on foreign currency debt. So we will look at some of those very important questions on this episode of the Ideas Factory. I'm Nagma and joining me is Professor Harsh Pan. A warm welcome to you, Harsh. Let's start by looking at the G7 summit. Prime Minister Modi is there. Let me begin by asking you, what's the significance of India being invited there as a partner country? There are a few other countries uh, that have been invited. The Prime Minister Modi has also interacted with the Indian diaspora there. These countries are meeting in Germany. Now, um, uh, let's look at uh, how significant is this?
0: Well, I think uh, there are two aspects. One is the importance of G7 itself and how uh, this is a critical moment for G7, given the the challenges that they are facing on several fronts. And this is a grouping of the most advanced, uh, industrially advanced countries in the world. Uh, And yet, uh, if you see these countries struggling to cope with global problems, there is a there is a crisis in Ukraine, of course, that has taken a very different dimension, militaristic dimension. There is a global economic crisis brewing. There is a climate crisis that is brewing. There is, you know, there, there of course, COVID uh, is still uh, not over. So multiple challenges from multiple quarters, and the world's foremost economies uh, are struggling and and uh, to to come to terms with these challenges. So I think for G seven now. What is important is to project a sense of unity, a sense of purpose, and to ensure that that the challenges that the global community is facing, these uh, advanced economies have some answers to those questions. So so, that is is one aspect of why this meeting is important, and particular, in the context of Ukraine, this is important, because Russia is watching closely uh, at any signs of disunity, and therefore you see Mr. Biden reiterating it time and time again, that we have to be together. We have to, you know, we have we have to continue to support Ukraine. The, 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 the unity among the Western countries should not be seen um, to, to be dissolving at this critical juncture when we are when we are looking at Russian control over Eastern Ukraine getting strengthened. Russia, in fact, has been targeting now Kiev. Uh, just as G7 meeting has been happening in, 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 in Germany. So I think that, you know, for, for, for a lot of these uh, G7 member countries, Ukraine question is almost an existential question about the unity of purpose uh, behind the, these these advanced economies. Now, India's, uh, you know, uh, engagement there is, is interesting and important because for the last few G7 meetings, India has been a, almost a prominent invitee now. And I think this is a recognition uh, of the fact that if, when you look at global problems today, uh, you really cannot provide solutions to those problems without India being on board. And I think, therefore, this this uh, engagement with India uh, continues to get strengthened, despite uh, some visible differences on Ukraine. So uh, So if you keep Ukraine aside... Uh, you would see that India uh, continues to be uh, quoted. India continues to be an important partner for these countries. And then certainly these countries feel that India needs to, uh, India should be on board if some of these challenges uh, are to be met. But in particular, I think what is interesting is that at a time when the Chinese model is being projected by China as the better one uh, compared to the Western democratic model, I think India is, 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 is a country that presents a contrast to that Chinese model. Here is a democracy with all its challenges that has managed its, uh, its problems, that has managed to provide uh, economic growth uh, and poverty alleviation to its people. And that is also providing solutions to global problems. So I think India's ability to emerge as a provider of global solutions is also part of this enticement that India presents today. So I think by and large, if you if you uh, see uh, how G7 and India are interacting today, it's a very interesting interaction because India certainly is not a part of G7, but India is being seen as an integral to the management of global problems, something that the G7 countries, uh, you know, when, when they had created this platform, envisioned that they would be the ones who would be providing solutions. So I think we have moved to a point where without India, a lot of these uh, problems would not be resolved. And therefore, having India within the tent uh, is, is something that is that is now looked favorably upon. So, by and large, an important summit in the context of Ukraine, but also in the context of what it says about India's rising global profile.
1: Absolutely, and in the context of uh, of the global challenges right now, of how to control inflation and uh, you know the energy crisis, the focus is uh, on all those problems. All these group of uh, seven industrialized nations are meeting there, along with these partner countries. But they've also announced a. F- you know, tougher sanctions against Russia. UK, US, Japan and Canada have already announced that they're going to ban the Russian gold imports. Now, will it cut off the funding for Putin's war machine, like as they call it? Or uh, do you think it is kind of, uh, it'll be effective in isolating Russia from the international financial system? Will that be effective? Because as these nations are meeting uh, at this platform, Putin has again stepped up the attack. And in about three weeks, for the first time, there was a Russian missile that landed in Kyiv. And uh, he's, again, he is signaling that we are not backing out.
0: You know, Putin is not, I mean, uh, it, it seems to me that Mr. Putin can't really afford to, uh, you know, back off from from a war that he has started. Uh, and, and he will need to uh, show some concrete gains to his people uh, in order to move back or in order to take a step back. So I, I don't think that... Uh, That is in the offing. And if you see the statements on both sides, both Russians and the Ukrainians, as well as the the Western uh, countries that are supporting Ukraine, they seem to be gearing up for a long war of attrition. So there is, you know, there is no hint that either of the two sides is willing to now engage in a political process leading to uh, some kind of a resolution or a diplomatic resolution to this conflict. I think still the instrumentality of force is seen as the most important, uh, as the most viable means of of, of uh, for either side to reach some kind of a conclusion. But I think what they, what the G seven uh, and and as you mentioned, uh, it, it's of, of the four uh, of the uh, four countries of the of the seven members, what they've tried to now showcase is that despite the longevity or the, the seeming longevity of this war. Uh, they remain united their uh, in, in their, uh, you know, in their uh, approach towards Russia they, they do not want to uh, uh, cut the uh, cut any slack they, they want to ensure that the message that is getting out from uh, the, the, the G7 from the d- developed world from the industrially advanced world is that uh, uh, they have no uh, intention of uh, of loosening the, the, the sanctions regime vis-a-vis uh, Mr. Putin and Russia. So in fact course, they're trying to yeah. show
1: yeah, yeah in fact they're trying to show that they there are options of tougher sanctions. Yes so they can so scale up
0: the sanctions. Indeed mm-hmm. they, they, they want to climb that escalation ladder and, and that there, there is uh, you know an escalation is still possible within the sanctions framework. So I think that is uh, you know that is uh, uh, the, the message that they want to send. The question is whether uh, the sanctions regime uh is going to be effective enough in in raising the cost so high for mr putin uh, that he will decide to uh you know come to to the negotiating table so far it, you know it has it, it doesn't seem it is working because we know that uh, uh the sanctions that have been imposed are one of one of its kind these are um you know one of the uh, strongest sanctions regime we have seen against any country against any regime and yet mr putin has been uh, nonchalant about it he has been he continues to uh, uh, you know wage uh, his war against ukraine uh, he continues to ratchet up tensions he continues to engage uh, ukraine militarily uh, and uh, in fact uh, uh, we have not seen any sign that despite some some stress on on, on the russian economy that uh, you know that that russians are feeling the pinch as of now so for but the, are the
1: Russians now feeling the pinch? Because, uh, I mean, for the first time they have defaulted on a foreign debt and uh, can Putin still reduce the impact of this ban by turning to the emerging markets?
0: I think, uh, you know, there are two issues. One, uh, he has, uh, uh, I mean, the, Russia has defaulted certainly and I think this is for the first time since 1918, uh, if if, if, the, if, if, you know, if the details that I have are right. But, uh, but I think uh, uh, that default is uh, primarily, you know, it uh, that the Russians are saying that they are willing to pay, uh, that they have no intention of defaulting, but it's the it's it's the uh, it's the international financial architecture that has boycotted, uh, uh, you know, uh, Putin's Russia that is preventing Russia from making those payments with the usual uh, systems and mechanisms available. Yeah. So I think it's it's a it's a more of a technical question rather than a question of Russia not having the resources to pay back the debt. So I think even, mm-hmm. even now, uh, given the uh, given the energy dependence of, of Europe on Russia, uh, Russians seem to be uh, uh, having enough reserves with them. So it, it doesn't seem at the moment uh, until now uh, that, that, it, it, that the sanctions have bitten to an, to an extent that the Western world would have thought. Also, uh, apart from the Europeans, uh, we have seen the numbers. For example, China has bought a lot of Russian oil. Discounted oil, Russians have offered it to India. Russians have offered it to some other countries. Uh, there is a lot of receptivity in, in Africa. So I think there is a there is a larger uh, picture here, which which makes Russia uh, seemingly not as isolated as perhaps the Western world would have wanted. And this has implications for Russia's own future, Russia's own uh, strategic posturing vis-a-vis Ukraine and the West. Uh, but uh, of course, the issue is can Russia sustain it? And I think there are reports that are coming from the ground are that. The the kind of losses that Russians have seen on the battlefield, the kind of uh, both uh, uh, you know manpower losses as, a, as well as equipment losses mean that if the present trends continue, it, it would become unsustainable very soon. But so far that point has not has not been reached and therefore uh, what g7 perhaps want to uh, uh you know want to ensure g7 members want to ensure is that look uh, while the sanctions regime may not be biting enough uh for the moment but we have uh, enough in our kitty to raise this bar even further and i think that message seems to be the one that they want to convey through g7 and russia of course is through its actions is insisting that it couldn't it care less, at least as of now. So I think we are in for a stalemate for a while.
1: Absolutely. While uh, at least the message that's coming out is that that Russia is turning into a political, economic and financial outcast. But uh, Russia is, uh, like you said, the stalemate is probably going to continue for a while. But also, uh, you know, if you, if you look at uh, publications other than the West, uh, there seems to be a narrative that this could be probably Biden's last attempt to rally the allies um, here in the West before before he faces the midterm poll in November, where there are predictions that the Democrats are probably not going to do that well. Uh, Do you see uh, this as Biden's last attempt to kind of rally the allies? What's happening at G7 now?
0: It it is certainly, uh, I think, uh, one platform that is available to him as of now before midterms to make his case of continuing unity of the need for continuing unity among uh, the G7 members and among the Western countries uh, vis-a-vis Russia. Now, uh, I think a lot would, uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, we know that as, as of now, the trends indicate that uh, the Democrats may not do very well. Mr. Biden's, Biden's own popularity is, is nose diving in, 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 in the, US. Uh, the U.S. Inflation is very high. Inflation is very high. So is mm. very high energy mm. energy uh, costs, food costs are rising. You, we have, uh, you know, low Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, the decision has polarized once again. The polarization is out on the streets in America. So I think the, the, the domestic capacity of the U.S. to withstand uh, the, the challenges that, that, uh, that American and Amer- American, American allies are facing uh, around the world today uh, is certainly at stake. And, and for, for, uh, for Mr. Biden, for President Biden, this is certainly a moment to reiterate uh, American commitment to some of these larger global issues. Now whether he can sustain that post-November elections midterm elections that remains to be seen. But as of now, certainly it provides him a platform to make his case uh, for a continuing need for unity, for for the need that Russia, uh, you know, that Russia has to be isolated, and that Western countries ca- should continue to ratchet up the pressure rather than giving in to this idea that look Ukraine uh, eventually will have to come to, to the negotiating table with the Russians. So I think uh, we we have seen the signs that uh, we are we are now looking at. Uh, and, and President Zelensky is also asking for more weapon systems from the West. And West is increasing the support, uh, at least as of now. So the idea is that if, if this is a war of attrition, then let us continue to support Zelensky and Ukrainians uh, with the weapon system that would allow them to maintain a modicum of uh, stalemate on the ground vis-a-vis Russians. And that would not allow Russia to win uh, a dramatic victory o- over the Ukrainians. And I think that's a message that perhaps uh, he will be sending to his G7 uh, counterparts. But uh, also interesting to mention that India will be there, that other, the three other countries that you had mentioned uh, have also been invited along with India. And the idea is also to send out this message that, look, this is also about uh, democracies, that this is also about a different kind of, of political systems around the world. But whether whether India and other other countries do see the Ukraine conflict from a democ- democracy versus autocracy prism, that also is questionable. I think India has never taken that stand uh, so far so I, so i think uh, for for mr biden this is an important moment to continue to press for unity to continue to press for uh, con, uh, you know uh, convergence among among like minded countries on this issue uh, how far he succeeds uh, that that would of course depend on not only on this summit but also on what happens in american domestic politics in the
1: yes arjun india's position is unique as far as ukraine is concerned um, you know because it's not really with the west as far as its stand on Ukraine and Russia is concerned, nor is it with the chi- with China. Uh, oh, while I'm uh, why I'm asking you this is uh, because just before this G7 meeting, the BRICS summit took place, and it took place in the background of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the continuing border tension between India and China. And oh, we saw that Prime Minister Modi actually skipped Ukraine, and he spoke more on the Uh, uh, on the pandemic, while the focus at the BRICS summit also was on Ukraine, while Xi Jinping tried to portray that there's a lot of cohesion amongst the BRICS members. What important messages did did really come out of
0: BRICS? Well, I think BRICS um, uh, was an interesting case study in in, in how institutions or platforms uh, where you have countries with divergent strategic interests. Uh, muddle along. Yes. Uh, and, and I think BRICS is one such platform where uh, the fundamental fault line at the moment is between India and China. Uh, and India certainly is there uh, because it, it views that platform as a means of, uh, of reaching out to, uh, to to Russians and to, to the Chinese, um, despite the, the bilateral problems. But I think if you, as you were mentioning, if you look at the focus areas, India was also very categorical in not making a BRICS platform a means that could project that, look, India is with uh, China and Russia on the Ukraine question, because India's position is distinct. India's position is that, uh, you know, UN Charter, the international law, territorial integrity and sovereignty of nations should be considered sacrosanct. Now, of course, there are two countries now uh, in, in BRICS that are challenging territorial integrity and sovereignty of other countries, China and Russia. And India has made this point uh, in in, in other uh, avatars uh, uh, earlier. So so therefore, for Prime Minister uh, Modi, uh, his focus on pandemic, his focus on governance, health governance, meant that he could steer the conversation uh, in areas where India feels uh, BRICS members have much to learn from each other and engage with each other on but uh, you know by skirting the issue of ukraine he was also signaling that india stands apart not in any camp not in the western camp and not in the russia china camp if you will but india stands india's approach is distinct india's uh, uh, and uh, in, interests are distinct and uh, the larger issue of china india problems uh, china india border tensions uh, are likely to shape the future evolution of brics as well because other uh, unless uh, china is able to manage uh, india better uh, the future of brics will remain contentious the future of brics will remain uh, suboptimal and i think that's that's why you see the focus areas becoming different india becoming narrower in its approach to the issues on, on brics whereas china and uh, also russia trying to expand the remit or trying to expand the uh, ambit of of the discussions that can ha- that could happen within the BRICS platform. And I think that, that uh, divergence speaks for itself as to the priorities of these countries.
1: Sure. Harsh, there are a couple of questions that I would like to include, which have been sent by our viewers. There's a question about Taiwan uh, and how will India react to Taiwan's independence as China is uh, threatening Taiwan over independence and also China claims the territory. Uh, will Quad intervene in the issue of invasion of Taiwan or US will take steps in this region? Uh, but uh, along with that question you know i also would uh, like you to comment on the recent asean summit that um, india hosted and um, you know the focus uh, during this asean summit and the role of asean in in, in the indo pacific and the centrality of asean yeah so uh-
0: you know, in, in some ways for India, for India's Indo-Pacific policy uh, to be successful, it is very important that India's ASEAN uh, outreach becomes more substantive. So, uh, so therefore, the, the India-ASEAN summit was uh, extremely important uh, because uh, it, it conveys uh, to the world that India remains committed to ASEAN, that ASEAN centrality is important, uh, is, is an important variable for India when it looks at its larger, wider Indo-Pacific policy. And what uh, what I think India has been able to do over the last few years is is make itself a more integral part of the Southeast Asian landscape rather than a country that had to be invited. India is now arguing that, look, India, uh, uh, India is, is an organic part uh, of Southeast Asia with its links to, uh, uh, with its cultural ties and, and economic and trade ties with, uh, Countries in its periphery, like Myanmar and Thailand and Indonesia, etc. But what is also interesting is uh, India's uh, growing footprint in the defence sector. Uh, mm-hmm. If uh, uh, Defence Minister Rajnath Singh's visit this month to uh, to, to Vietnam, uh, signing of the uh, India India defence uh, India Vietnam defence framework agreement, uh, underlying the need. Uh, for, for India to engage more substantively with Vietnam and for Vietnam to look at India as a reliable defense partner. These are important uh, you know, uh, changes in India's posture in the region uh, to, to emerge as a credible uh, security provider, as an econo- both uh, you know, economic security provider as well as uh, diplomatic security provider. So I think there is a larger sense that India uh, should continue to see ASEAN as central to its uh, Indo-Pacific outreach. On the question of Taiwan, which I think uh, was mentioned, uh, yes, it, it, it is. It is very interesting that if you uh, if you see the conversations uh, that happened at Shangri La Dialogue uh, in, uh, this month, earlier this month, uh, Taiwan was at the heart of the conversation. Taiwan has suddenly become, uh, you know, the the next big flashpoint on, on the global scene because uh, th- there is a lot of concern that what Russia is doing to Ukraine. Um, China may be tempted to do a visa with Taiwan. Of course, uh, you know, Ukraine and Taiwan are not comparable in many ways. Uh, but I think the sense that you have uh, China becoming uh, more powerful, China becoming more aggressive, and China challenging the fundamental norms that have shaped uh, the interstate behavior in the Indo-Pacific for the last several decades uh, have brought us to this point. Uh, and and uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, was very categorical in his speech at Shangri-La, that look, China is challenging and China is aggressive. China and China has to be pushed back. Uh, and uh, similarly, on the other on the other hand, when it when it was uh, the Chinese defense minister's turn to take the podium, uh, he was equally, um, um, uh, you, you know, he, he he pushed back equally strongly, and he was uh, very categorical that uh, China will fight uh, if need be to protect its interests in Taiwan. So I think there is a sense that Taiwan can become the next flashpoint if it is not already. And Taiwanese are aware of it. You see uh, every few weeks uh, Chinese uh, fighter jets intruding into uh, Taiwan's uh, ADIZ uh, and uh, and uh, America then trying to uh, sh- uh, create a show of strength there in its own way. Uh, but Taiwanese are aware of the challenge that they are facing the Indo-Pacific is aware of the challenge that Taiwan issue is posing now to the wider Indo-Pacific security. And I think the two major powers in the world today, China and the U.S., are increasingly uh, coming, uh, be, uh, you know, are increasingly at odds on this fundamental question that for a while it seemed had been resolved in some ways. But now all the terms of that engagement are are, are, are being reset. It's how they are reset, what are the implications of that reset, I think that, that will define uh, perhaps the future of Taiwan and the future in many ways of the Indo-Pacific stability and security. And quote therefore, which talks of stability and security in the Indo-Pacific as a fundamental norm that needs to be protected, we'll have to find a way to address this problem. Sure.
1: Thank you so much, Harsh, for um, that explanation and that analysis. We have time for just this much on this episode of the Ideas Factory, but we would request our viewers to send in your questions and we will try and take as many as possible in the next episode. Thank you for watching. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the
0: ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.